2: Hey everybody, this is Frank Hannon from Tesla and I'm on my weekly mixtape with my friend, Brian Colburn. We're gonna be talking about all kinds of music and different things and stories about Tesla. So uh, stay tuned and I hope you enjoy the show.
0: Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. Tonight, I'm excited to welcome to the show the guitarist for one of the best hard rock bands to come out of the 1980s, one of my favorites, Tesla, and I get to welcome Mr. Frank Hannon to the show. Frank, thank you so much for joining me on My Weekly Mixtape. My Weekly Mixtape. I like it, Brian.
2: Uh, thank you for having me. Um, sounds like we're going to have a great conversation based on what we're
0: uh, we're talking about here. Yeah, so let's start with the actual name of the show because I always ask my first-time guests the word mixtape. What does it mean to you? Well, it means to me uh, what we used to make back
2: in high school when we actually had cassette tapes and ghetto blasters. And, you know, we would make... A compilation of our favorite tunes, you know, and I can tell you for me, even going back to 1979, I, my grandpa bought a, a ghetto blaster that would record directly off the radio and the FM radio was playing such great music at the time. And I remember hitting record when uh, Billy Squire was singing The Stroke and and then, uh, you know, I remember hearing Green Man Alishi by Judas Priest on the radio and I would hit record, you know, so It was a magical time back then to make mixtapes. And so
0: that's kind of what it means to me. Well, it's hard for me to believe that we're just a few short years away from the 40th anniversary of Tesla's debut album, Mechanical Resonance. What would you say is the secret to the longevity to such tunes as Easy Come, Easy Go, Coming At You Live, and Modern Day Cowboy, just for starters?
2: Well, I would say that the secret to the longevity of that may lie in the fact that we were a band that had been playing the clubs for, you know, three or four years solid all the time. And we worked really hard on those songs, developing them. And we had a lot of different experiences with different people. Before we even recorded that first album, we were coached by Ronnie Montrose. We worked with Dwayne Hitchings, who was a songwriter. Max Norman came to one of our rehearsals and scolded us. We were getting coached and beat up by a lot of big-name producers at the time, (laughs) working on those songs in the clubs and playing them live. And when we went into the studio to record Mechanical Resonance, we played live in the studio. That was one of the things that Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero and Tom Zutott and Cliff Bernstein, the people that were working for our management and our production at that time, who took us under our wing, under their wings, I'm sorry. They insisted that we captured the band live and what they had witnessed us playing in the clubs. So I would say that the magic of that first Mechanical Resonance album and the longevity is a combination of it being live in the studio and songs that had been played live in the concert setting
0: for a couple years developing. Now, the band's cover of PhD's Little Susie's on the Up charted higher than the original. And I'm going to be perfectly honest that I have shocked people when I told them that Little Susie is actually a cover song because I I think it was the fifth video to air on MTV. So to me, there's some historical significance to it. But Tesla's version became so synonymous with the song. People forget that the original existed. I would love to hear how a cover of a new wave song came to fruition in the first place. Isn't that such a weird thing?
2: That song... And it's such a good, it's such a great song, honestly, the way it's written and arranged. And for us, playing the acoustic guitar on it really was the key to making it sound like us. And again, I had just mentioned to you that we played the clubs for years and we were being coached by people. And, you know, we were being coached by Ronnie Montrose, who Legend. was interested in being a producer at that time now you got to remember this is in the early 80s and the term producer the producer was like a big deal on albums of that era you know mutt lang was producing Def Leppard and pyromania and acdc and and bruce fairbairn was producing brian adams and max norman had just produced the ozzy albums so Ronnie Montrose wanted to be a producer. And you also got to remember that cover tunes at that time, if you could find an obscure cover and it became a hit, then that would be a hit for a band. Like when Van Halen covered You Really Got Me, right? Or when Quiet Riot covered Come On, Feel The Noise. Mm -hmm. So Ronnie Montrose wanted to find a cover tune for us and he brought little susie of all songs (laughs) in the world now you gotta remember we were a cover band at that time as well we were playing top 40 in the clubs and uh, we were covering scorpions and and acdc but the logic behind little susie was that it was not a rock song it was something completely different But it was still a great song with a great message about a young gal trying to make it. And so Ronnie Montrose knew of the song and he suggested it to us and basically told us that if we did a good version of it, that it would be a hit. And he was right. And uh, she's still paying our bills today.
1: (laughs)
0: Well, in between Mechanical Resonance and 1989's The Great Radio Controversy, the quote-unquote hair metal moment was well underway, and labels were rushing out to find as many MTV-ready bands as they could, while also working very hard to try to get other artists to conform their sound to what was currently charting left and right on the charts, Yet when I listen to songs like Heaven's Trail, No Way Out, and Hang Tough, I hear a band that's 100% confident in the musical statement that they're making. And I always have wondered, did you have to fight for the songs that Tesla wanted to record and release, or was Geffen 100% in your corner during that period in time? Well, I would say it was both.
2: Okay, There were some songs that we had to fight for, but we were always being directed by the people that we worked with to write the best songs we could possibly write and not have any filler material or cheesy garbage material on an album. They always insisted that the entire album be good not just have one song on it that was good and the rest of it be junk. And what I'm talking about, Cliff Bernstein and Peter Minch and Tom Zutat, they were directing us at the time. And they were responsible for Rush, Def Leppard, Metallica, ACDC, and, you know, Dokken. And so they were involved with some really high caliber kick-ass bands that had integrity. So... We were very lucky to be getting advice from them to try to write real songs that were gritty and from the heart and not cheesy. And they put a lot of uh, high expectations on us because we were, again, in the company of bands like Metallica and Rush and ACBC, Scorpions, Def Leppard. That was the goal of being, you know, we weren't trying to compete with the glam bands and the, and the trendy stuff we were, we were trying to be ourselves. And luckily we weren't having pressure put on us to be glam metal. We were having more pressure on us to be ourselves and to write the best songs that we could for ourselves.
0: Well, speaking of best songs, one of my favorite things ever to play on acoustic guitar, it's actually the song that I, play on a guitar when I want to make sure it's a guitar I want to purchase is the beautiful finger picking at the beginning to the band's smash hit love song. And I've always wondered why that gorgeous opening was never included on the radio edit that aired on MTV, because to me, that's part of the complete song. And at that moment in time, bands were stretching ballads well past the five-minute mark because you had Bon Jovi's I'll Be There For You and Guns N' Roses Patience. So it always made me wonder why that signature part of the song never made the radio cut. Well first of all I want to say
2: thank you Brian for for the kudos and the compliment on that little thing there. And um as far as why it wasn't included on the MTV version or whatever, I don't really know. I, I know that We had a hard time even getting Airplay as it was because we weren't a band like Bon Jovi that was that famous at that time. And maybe they didn't want video of just me playing the guitar by myself. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but it is on our Times Making Changes video. Um, There's a version of me playing it live before Love Song, you know, with a beautiful sunrise coming up. And, you know, there's a lot of, questions that we had on why this didn't happen and why that didn't happen. And I I don't have the answer to that. But the fact that a guy like yourself just told me how much it means to you, then you know what? That's rewarding enough for me, man. Thank you so much. And it, it touches a lot of people and we play it at every show. And it's the most simplest but heartfelt little piece of music that I've personally written and um I'm very grateful that I was allowed to put it on the album, to be honest, because I recorded it at home and I sent the tape to New York and and Michael Barbiero, bless his heart, he told me he he would put it on the song for me. And so it was it was a gift from that angle that it even made it on the album. Wow, that's amazing. I actually had no idea about that. We were talking about a little susie, right? That we were. Well, there's an acoustic piece that I did at the beginning of that that I'm even more proud of than the love song thing, and it's not even part of the original Little Susie. That little piece of acoustic finger-picking is something that I really am proud of musically. It's on our first album. It's an acoustic solo that I did that wasn't. It got included on the song Little Susie, but it's not a cover. That's my piece of music that is actually harder to play than Love Song.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as someone who can play the opening to Love Song but can't play that acoustic opening to Little Susie, I'm going to say you are 100% accurate with that. (laughs) Yeah, that little acoustic thing,
2: it's called Dad Gad Tuning, D-A-D-G-A-D. And man, I really struggled hard to get that little thing. And I recorded it in my bathroom at home. And again, I sent the tape to New York after the record was done, and Michael Barbiero, the engineer, took the tape and snuck it in and slid it in onto the song. So that acoustic thing on Little Susie and the acoustic thing on Love Song were both little pieces of music that I wrote that were added into the music. Wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that blows my mind right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've always felt that the band's album, Five Man Acoustical Jam, was part of the musical lightning rod that led MTV to really dig their heels into the unplugged movement as we move throughout the 90s. And from what I've read over the years, the band was at one point reluctant to Around the thought of playing an entire acoustic set. So, I would love to know how this classic live acoustic album came to be and what the band thinks of it now in retrospect. Well, I would say
2: that we weren't, it wasn't that we were reluctant uh, to play acoustic because me personally, I was always the guy in the band playing acoustic. Right. And what we would do is we would go to radio stations during the day, like usually during a lunch hour or do an interview or whatever. And we would bring acoustic guitars and we would talk on the air and we would play acoustic guitars and sing a couple songs. So we were always doing acoustic stuff like that. But I think what happened was that we were invited to perform at a awards ceremony in San Francisco Bay Area called the Bay Area Music Awards. And all of our electric equipment was in a truck on the East Coast. And we were only home for a few days. And so the only way we could perform at this Bay Area music thing was acoustically. And we didn't want to miss out on that opportunity. So We did it. We played one song or something, and the crowd went nuts. It was like, wow, okay, this is something different. And the promoter of that show invited us to play at a club and do a whole entire show, not only just one show, but two shows in one night at Slim's in San Francisco. And then that's when we started getting reluctant. We're like, wait a minute, that's going to be boring. I don't know. We don't know if we want to do a whole entire two shows of acoustic. And our manager, Peter Minch, said, well, maybe you guys just can't do it. You're not good enough. And so (laughs) that was the challenge. And we said, "Okay, we'll show you. So we went to we rehearsed for three days and changed our songs around a little bit to fit an acoustic vibe. You like, you know, the the modern day cowboy now the campfire version of it.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Coming at you live ended up being the Grateful Dead trucking version of it. You know, so we changed our songs to be a little bit more campfire friendly. And we played the shows and they sold out and people loved it. So fast forward a couple months and we were on the road with Motley Crue. And we had a couple days off where we were bored and we went ahead and booked a couple shows. And Philadelphia turned out to be one of them. And we recorded it, thank God. And then we mixed it. And the magic of that album to me is the audience. Um, When we were mixing that album, I was in the studio in the control room and I told the engineer to make sure and push the faders up and turn up the audience sound really loud because I want the people to hear and feel the audience of the room. To me, the audience plays a critical role in any live performance. And if you listen to Five Man Acoustic Jam, the audience is really audible.
0: I always loved the origins of the five-man acoustical jam album name as a nod to the five-man electrical band, the original writers of the song Signs. And obviously, the song went on to become a massive hit and even surpassed the original on the Hot 100 charts. Did you guys have any idea when you played that show that night where Signs was just going to blow up like that? we really didn't have an idea that it would blow up, but we did
2: know that we loved the song and signs is an example of when a lead vocalist feels the lyrics of a song and they deliver it, you know, Jeff Keith, our singer loved the lyrics of that song and we would just goof around on it and, and, and play it at radio stations. And we were goofing around at a radio station in Boston and we played signs and goofing around and they recorded it from that particular recording their telephone started ringing people were calling them and saying hey we want to hear that song signs again and so we did get a notion that people loved the song and they could feel that jeff our singer was delivering it and so um That's when we decided that, uh, well, heck, let's release it from that Philadelphia show. And then the rest is history.
0: Well, I have one last question about five man, because this was a part that on the VHS tape that I owned growing up five man video band during love song, which we spoke about earlier. You guys play the first half of the song acoustic and then you stand up, smack your mic stand over and start shredding on electric guitar. Seeing that moment for the first time on VHS and hearing it on the album blew my mind as a a 13-year-old. I'd love to know what the mindset was for the band to take that moment in time to plug in and kind of break the acoustic ceiling, if you will, for that part of the song.
2: Well, I appreciate you saying that. That was just one of those kind of fluke moments where it was the end of the show the very end and the guys in the band were telling me that they really missed my solo of the electric guitar solo that i play in love song the actual solo itself is pretty melodic and a big epic kind of thing and love song does that on its own even the studio version starts off mellow and ends with a big crescendo yes so I just randomly did it when we were doing those shows Uh, when we were practicing. I just randomly picked up the electric guitar kind of out of frustration of sitting down all night and just it was an accident. And I did it. And the guys were going, yes, do that. Frankie, do that. They, They were giving me a lot of support. You know, Brian and Tommy and Jeff and Troy, those guys, you know, I was the youngest guy in the band at the time. And they were always really supportive of me as being the young guitar player guy. And whenever I would come up with a crazy idea or something, they would give me the thumbs up. And
0: it was just one of those flukes that I I did on accident. And it worked in the show. That it certainly did. Moving along the timeline here. There's a meme that's circulating about seven cassette tapes that were originally released in 1991 and all were within 44 days of each other. And those cassettes were Metallica's Black Album, Pearl Jam's 10, Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger. But fun fact, right dead smack in the middle of all those releases came Tesla's incredible psychotic supper which the lead single, Edison's Medicine, is probably my favorite Tesla track of all time. Given the change in the music climate of 1991 and the massive success of Five Man, did you guys feel that the stakes were even higher for Psychotic Supper?
2: Well, you know, Psychotic Supper is an album for Tesla that we were very strong-willed at that wanted to do whatever the hell we wanted to do and we weren't really taking that advice anymore that we used to take like I told you we were always being instructed and coached by people and at that point we were like giving the middle finger to everybody and I think I think it really comes across on the album you can really hear the angst and the edginess of it we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to try to capture the the band live on that particular album it's really raw and we recorded it in manhattan right in the city at the power station right in the center of manhattan we were there for three months and just going crazy and that's why the title of it psychotic supper is definitely appropriate for it tesla didn't really have a problem with the changes and the grunge and the trends that came and went through music Most of our own problems were self inflicted within internally, as far as you know, drinking and using drugs and not ever taking a break. You know, we didn't ever take a break from the time we released Mechanical Resonance until we did the psychotic separate tour headlining, all the way until we did Last Action Hero, and then we really got burnt out. And you know, we had a really great run, but we near the end of it. We started really like every band. I don't care if it's Led Zeppelin or Van Halen. The first 10 years, the ending part of that first 10 years, and when you're really getting high all the time on drugs and alcohol and egos are out of control, you know, we kind of self imploded at the end of that headlining tour. But it wasn't, I'm not going to blame grunge or any of that. You know, I mean, yeah, grunge probably killed a lot of glam metal lipstick wearing bands but we didn't have that problem it was mostly our own problems but you know all those bands you just mentioned guns and roses soundgarden we love all
0: those bands I have mad respect for all of them and by the time you got to 1994 like you were talking about the band was in this burnout when you listen back to bust a nut to me that's still a classic tesla album because i think about they had the radio hits mama's fool and need your loving but there was songs like The Gate, Invited, and Solution that to me were is some of the best stuff Tesla's ever done. Did you guys really feel at that point like there was some writing on the wall or something? Because it was shortly after that album that the band decided to take a break. Yeah, yeah. That album
2: was at the end of our first chapter. And like I said, we had reached a point at that point with substance abuse and egos and problems that weren't there for the first half of that 10 years that uh, manifested themselves again i agree with you it's a great album shine away solution i mean we worked really hard on that album and terry thomas the producer was a fantastic engineer killer producer learned a lot from him you know he salvaged it as much as he could he also went on to produce our later albums like forevermore and you know we love terry thomas great producer he produced bad company and some other bands but we had gone through a period at that point by then at the end of that first chapter and i you know like i said soundgarden led zeppelin van helen with david lee roth every great band goes through their heyday of about the first 10 years and then they self-destruct and then they get back together and try to resurrect it again which is what we've done We're looking at 40 years now, you know, and we've made a lot of albums after that chapter two and chapter three of Tesla. You know, um, we did Into the Now. We've done Simplicity, Real to Real, Forevermore, you know, Time to Rock, Shock. we've, We've done a lot of recordings and stuff in the chapters following. But Busted Out was the end of chapter one, and it was a difficult time for us because of our own internal
0: problems that we were having. Well, I wanna talk about chapter two now because after that 10 year break, the aughts brought two incredible albums that you just mentioned in what you were talking about. 2004's Into the Now, which features amazing tracks like What a Shame, Mighty Mouse and the title track. And then 2008's Forevermore featuring I Wanna Live, The First Time and the title track. Both of these albums show to me a perfect balance of a band that knows how to balance the sounds that people know and want to hear from Tesla but also push new grounds musically. And it was also between these two albums where Tommy Skio was replaced by Dave Rude in the band. Can you talk about what the odds were in terms of a musical transition and what Dave brought and continues to bring to Tesla currently?
2: Yeah, sure, you know, let me see so yeah you mentioned into the now uh, that's when we got back together and we had gone through a period of time like four to five years of very difficult low period of time for all of us individually i had a band called moondog Maine that i worked mm-hmm. really hard on that didn't get very far and the same with Jeff and Tommy and, and Brian had Soul Motor and Tommy and Jeff had Sofa King or whatever. And it was a a low point because everyone, our fans wanted Tesla. They didn't want any of that other stuff. They wanted to hear Tesla back together. So we got back together and we sold out a show immediately on Halloween night. And it, it was amazing. And then we went on tour and we did the Rock Never Stops tour in uh, 2000, 2001. And the fans were just really supportive of us being back together. So we put together the album into the now, which the title itself is talking about us coming into the new millennia after, you know, 2000 Y2K pass. And now here we are again. It was like a rebirth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's a roller coaster ride, man. I tell you, man, when you've got personal problems and personalities and bad blood and history and the, different ego trips and problems that sometimes will still exist, you know, and, uh, Grace slick said it perfectly when rock and roll is great. It's the best. It's the greatest thing. And when it's not, when it's hard, it's the worst. It's the hardest. It's, it's Mm -hmm. a freaking roller coaster. I always equate it to being a surfer, man. And you catch a wave and you ride it in and then you got to swim back out and catch another wave, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) getting back to, to, uh, those waves of hard times during that period uh, I searched and searched and searched for a guitar player that had the personality that we needed that was solid and dependable and into the band for the band as a team you know and I found Dave Rude on MySpace and went and jammed with them and the chemistry was great and I had already jammed with about 10 other players and they were great players, but it just the chemistry wasn't right with the right hand. When you're a guitar player, you got to have the right hand synchronized in rhythm, the body clock. And Dave fit perfectly with that and brought a great new energy to the band. And he's been with us now for, what, 18 years or something? It's yep, It's yep. been great. And uh, we've kept this thing going, kept it alive and created some new music and uh, been riding those waves, man. You know, and now we're looking at 40 years of this. We're going to be in Las Vegas doing residencies again. We got invited back to perform five nights in one venue, which is a feat. Uh, We've done tours with Def Leppard, with Mm Styx, with Joan Jett, with Ariel Speedway. We just did a show with them last month. You know, so we're firing in all cylinders and it's survival, man. You got to swim back out and catch another wave. That's just how I look at it. (laughs) There's a lot of swimming involved, man. You know, yeah. when you're a surfer, you're not riding waves. You got to fucking work and swim and you got to go out there and find the right wave to jump on. And that's kind of how it is with music. When you're in a band, you ride a wave and then you get back on the beach and you write some more songs and you swim and you
0: work hard and make another album. And then you go back out there and ride that wave again every year. <laughs> it's a new wave. Well, I want to talk about the wave from 2007 because I am a sucker for cover songs and the band's reel to reels volume one and two are some of my favorite cover albums ever. And I want to focus on one song because when I was a kid, my parents fooled me and they got me to listen to music by explaining to me that if they put a record on, they were going to show me a guitar that would talk to me. And my parents put on Frampton Comes Alive and introduced me to Do You Feel Like We Do. Your version on that album is literally equal in power to me. And I would love to know from one guitarist to another, how do you put your stamp on a legendary solo talk box and all and approach the balance between paying homage to a song that you love and putting your personal stamp on it? Because you guys knocked it out of the park. Well, gosh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And that's a song that,
2: yeah, you don't want to screw it up, (laughs) you know? Yeah. You know, like you hear a lot of covers and you hear a lot of people do things and sometimes they'll butcher a song and change it to try to be try to be clever, you know, and, and make it their own and they'll train wreck it. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to we wanted to keep it true to what Peter Frampton did. And so we tried to keep it true to that. But, you know, it's ingrained. That song is ingrained. I mean, I've been listening to that live album, Frampton Comes Alive, in my headphones since I was 10 years old when it came out. And I probably heard it 7,000 times in my ears, you know? So it's kind of in my blood, you know? Uh, some music, it's weird with music. There's some songs where I can pick up a guitar and just start playing it. And I've never played it before, but I just can I can play it just because I've heard it so much. It becomes second nature, you know? It becomes part of your DNA. And, you know, Aerosmith and Frampton and artists like that are definitely part of our DNA. And uh, that's why we did S.O.S. Too Bad on our new live album, it's because that's part of our DNA. You know, J.K., our singer, Steven Tyler is definitely part of his DNA influence, you know. So uh, that's where that comes from. And speaking of real to real, I want to announce that we're remastering it for vinyl, and it's going to be Ooh. coming out on Record Store Day next year. We just finished the artwork for it, and it it's going to be really great, remastered on vinyl. Oh, I can't uh, wait. So there you have it. News announcement for you.
0: Well, I appreciate you using my weekly mixtape to announce it. All right. Now with eight studio albums, two cover song albums, and multiple live releases, the band has quite a massive song list to pull from. How do you guys decide what songs make your live sets? Because at this stage of your career, I'm certain the crowd is divided between the folks that want nothing but the hits and the folks that want to hear deeper cuts and some jams like the tracks that you guys included on Full Throttle Live. Because to me, Full Throttle Live feels like the cornucopia of Tesla deep cuts. Well, thanks. Yeah, we did that on purpose. We we decided for Full Throttle
2: Live to keep it with the deeper tracks and the the heavier side of things, like Miles Away and Lazy Days, Crazy Nights and mm-hmm. stuff like that, you know, the deeper cuts. Well, We did that on purpose for Full Throttle Live. So, you know, one of the great things about these residencies is it forces us to change our set every night a little bit. I mean, we obviously play the hits that sports fans want to hear. But the true like diehard fans want to hear different ones. And the ones that come to every show, we wanted to change it up for them. So we practiced during the day and we listened to J.K., his voice, you know, and determined what he can honestly sing and what maybe we shouldn't try to make him sing, you know, that's going to ruin his voice. And I'll experiment with trying the songs maybe in a better key for him, you know, things like that. And make the song sound better. And if the song sounds great at soundcheck, then we'll put it in the set that night. And, you know, we have a list of A songs, B songs, and deep C songs that are deeper cuts. And, you know, like if we're doing 18 songs, we want to do 12 of them that are the hits that we have to do, like What You Give, Love Song, Modern Day Cowboy Signs. And then we've got three or four songs that we rotate, like Stir It Up or Song and Emotion or uh, The Way It Is or whatever songs that we rotate and change the set different each night. So that's how we do
0: it. And it all depends on what he can sing. Well, since 2021, the band has released two new studio singles, 2021's Cold Blue Steel which is a nod to Southern rock legends, Leonard Skinner, as well as 2022's time to rock are the days of Tesla studio albums done, or are these two songs, maybe teasers to a new full length? Well, we might put these all together on a compilation thing, you know, but I don't really
2: know the answer. I don't really have a crystal ball other than things have changed completely. We're a lot older now. And The media, the way people consume music, the way people listen to music is different. So we don't want to lock ourselves away up for a year and try to fabricate 12 songs and and hopefully somebody will like one or two of them. It's like it's a waste of time now to do that for us at our stage in our life. We would rather create one or two new things that we're feeling really strong about and put them out now while they're feeling good. Instead of like doing it the old-fashioned way where we would spend a year trying to write a a full-length album and it's not the same anymore. And things change. That's just the way it is. And we're happy with the way we're doing things now. Will we ever, never make a full-length album and do it the old-fashioned way? I can't tell you. All I can tell you is that right now, we're really happy creating... A song and putting it out in the moment and we've got a new song in the pipeline that we're planning on recording in february it's gonna be another love song it's called all about love we've got a couple more ideas for a couple more different covers we're gonna do i've got a new solo album i've been working on you know brian's got projects dave rude's gonna come out with a project he's been chipping away at for a year so you know We're living more in the moment now than we ever have before because thanks to the cell phone and the way social media is today, it's all in the moment. Everything is fresh and in the moment. I can record a thing right now and post it and it'd be out there right now. Whereas in the old days, we would have to keep our fingers crossed and hope that MTV might play it if MTV was still around. Or if a radio station maybe might play it. Nowadays, we don't have to freaking worry about that. We can just record what we want and put it out and people are going to hear it right away. And we like that.
0: Singles or albums, as long as there's a steady stream of Tesla music still coming the fans' way, I think we're all going to be happy.
2: Yeah, yeah. We don't want to make people wait. And we don't want to wait and slave to the grind for a year trying to create... Because then you're in a mindset of fabricating something that maybe is not going to be as good as if you just focus on one or two things in the moment and put them out when they're feeling fresh,
0: it's, it's a lot more fun. Well, if you had to sum up Tesla's musical legacy in three songs what three songs would you choose and why? And I don't mean your favorites. I mean, songs that you feel like if you had to tell someone, this is the story of Tesla in three songs, which three songs would they be? Well, I would stay away from the covers, even though we do
2: covers really well, I would stick to modern day cowboy because to me, that song is timeless with the lyrics and the guitar riffs are a great example of us being a team and collaborating and putting together guitar parts that were very innovative at the time. And the lyrics, J.K. singing about the USA and the USSR, and it's still relevant today. Mm -hmm. So Modern Day Cowboy being our first single, to me, definitely I'm very proud of that song. And then I would say Love Song because it's another example of a song that we fought for that has the acoustic intro and has the musical arrangement of something that's very different. And then I would say probably What You Give. It, it lyrically uh, is one of JK's best moments. And I would those would be my
0: three original songs for Tesla. Well, Frank, this has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you tonight. Thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape.
2: My weekly mixtape. I love it, Brian. Thank you for having me and I hope I didn't bore y'all with <laughs> with too much uh, weird stuff. I would say quite the
0: opposite, man.
2: Again, man, we're riding that wave, swimming and swimming and
0: surviving. Well, thank you very much for doing that because we here appreciate the music so so much.
2: Thanks, man, and I want to tell everybody that's how life is, man. You know, you can survive the storms, you know. It's it's a crazy world, but Just try to, you know, find some inner peace and just don't get too caught up in the craziness and just keep on swimming, keeping your head above the water and uh, hang tough out there.
0: And remember, mixtapers, you can head to the episode page at myweeklymixtape.com and hear a playlist of all the songs we've discussed in tonight's discussion. You can also head to myweeklymixtape.com to hear the full catalog of my weekly mixtape episodes. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend, leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or by becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash myweeklymixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, enjoy the tunes.
1: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.